So our New Testament text for this evening comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. So Paul says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, uh, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Most merciful God, uh, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray all this in Christ. Well, good evening. It's really good to be back with you. Um, it's been a lot of fun getting to uh, know and work with Eric over uh, the last year. Eric has been uh, serving uh, part-time also as a uh, volunteer campus minister with me with InterVarsity, reaching out to uh, graduate students and professional students at New York University, and uh, it's just been a lot of fun working alongside of him. And uh, so it's been it's been fun also to you know get to think about uh, this sermon series uh, that that he's launched you out on. Uh, as you all know, uh, we are continuing a series exploring what ifs, what ifs, the anxieties and the uncertainties that keep us up at night. Uh, as I'm sure Eric has already told you, the sermon series and the title derived from a poem by Shel Silverstein. Uh, so it's got the Shel Silverstein sort of cover art here on the bulletin. Um, here, let me just read you the poem, just to refresh your memory. Last night, while I lay thinking here, some what-ifs crawled inside my ear and pranced and partied all night long and sang their same old what-if song. 
What if I'm dumb in school? What if they've closed the swimming pool? What if I get beat up? What if there's poison in my cup? What if I start to cry? What if I get sick and die? What if I flunk that test? What if green hair grows on my chest? What if nobody likes me? What if a bolt of lightning strikes me? What if I don't grow taller? What if my head starts getting smaller? What if the fish won't bite? What if the wind tears up my kite? What if they start a war? What if my parents get divorced? What if the bus is late? What if my teeth don't grow in straight? What if I tear my pants? What if I never learn to dance? Everything seems well and then the nighttime what ifs strike again. The nighttime what ifs. Alright, if we're honest, these what ifs don't just haunt us at night, but they also drive most of what we do during the daytime as well. They don't go away and go quiet as soon as the sun comes up. Instead, they sort of coax and conjole us and poke and prod us and, and, and drive us uh, in, in a lot of our day-to-day -day decisions. Um, the question that Eric asked me to address with you tonight is this. What if they find out I'm faking it? What if they find out I'm faking it? What if they find out that I'm a fraud? What if they find out that I'm not the real deal or that I'm an imposter? That's our question for tonight, and I think it's a big one. Uh, the anxiety that I'm talking about has, uh, has, has actually been diagnosed within the psychological community. They have a term for it. They call it imposter syndrome. Anybody ever heard of imposter syndrome before? It's a big deal in, uh, in higher education. Most students really struggle with it, particularly at the grad level. It's the nagging sense that I am not good enough to be here. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not competent enough. The school never should have admitted me. Uh, this workplace never should have hired me. My spouse never should have married me. And it's only a matter of time before I say or do the wrong thing in front of the, in front of the wrong person, and I'm exposed, exposed as a fraud. And every day, I get up and I do whatever I have to do to keep that day from being this day, to keep this from being the day when I am unmasked. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Getting close to home for anybody? Um, I bet it is. I mean, statistically speaking, I bet it is. Uh, the two leading psychologists who've studied this phenomenon, uh, imposter syndrome, found that 70% of people have experienced this feeling of being fraudulent. Um, and interestingly, two out of every five people who are deemed to be successful in their field, people who you pick out as being successes, uh, two out of five people uh, in that category consider themselves to be fraudulent. They feel it. And interestingly, the same numbers hold, the, the numbers hold steady across genders. Both men and women experience imposter syndrome in roughly the same proportions. So, like I said, this is a big question. This question, what if they find out I'm faking it, I think keeps a lot of us up at night. So what to do? Uh, here's how I'd like to tackle this question tonight. I want to break it down a little bit. Uh, first, I want to ask, who do I think they are? And I say, what if they find out I'm faking it? Who's they? Then I want to ask, who do I think I am? Another big question. And then I want to circle back around and ask, who am I really? Who am I really? So to start off, who do I think they are? When I say, uh, what if they find out I'm faking it, who's they? Who's the they I'm so worried about? Um, probably the best explanation of what I mean by they comes from C.S. Lewis's great lecture, The Inner Ring. 
never read it, I highly recommend uh, picking that up sometime during this week. You can find it online. Uh, Lewis himself opens up the lecture uh, by describing two different kinds of hierarchies uh, that you find in the world, two different kinds of social systems or hierarchies. Uh, so one kind is uh, very formal and official and well-defined, uh, clearly delineated, it's constant. It's basically the kind of ranking system or hierarchy that you find in sort of the, like the military, right? Um, you know, so it's clearly delineated. A general is always superior to a colonel, and a colonel is always superior to a captain, and so on and so on. Um, it's all very, you know, regulated and clearly defined. But there's another kind of hierarchy that is a lot less well-defined, uh, but that governs much of how our world works. I'm talking here about the kinds of hierarchies that are defined by popularity or by influence or by just basic social acceptance. You can find these sorts of informal social pecking orders uh, in high school classrooms and in corporate boardrooms. To get at what I'm talking about, you might think back to a time when you were either the new kid on the block or the new hire in the firm and when you first started to recognize who the real in crowd was who were the movers and shakers in this, uh, in this organization. They may not necessarily be the people who have the highest rank, right? The people who have pull, uh, often, often that's a much softer, sort of ambiguous, vague sort of category. So let's see what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. Uh, see if this describes your experience of what the in-crowd often looks like. So you're never formally and explicitly admitted by anyone. You discover gradually in almost indefinable ways that it exists and that you are outside it. And then later, perhaps, if you're lucky, inside it. There are what correspond to passwords, but they are too spontaneous and informal. A particular slang, the use of a particular nickname, an elusive manner of conversation are the marks of it. But it's not so constant. It is not easy, even at a given moment, to say who is inside and who is outside. Some people are obviously in, and some people are obviously out, but there are always several on the borderline. There are no formal admissions or expulsions. People think they are in it, and uh, they are sometimes thinking they're in it after they have, in fact, been pushed out, or before they've even been allowed in and this provides great amusement for those who are really on the inside. So here, Lewis is describing an all too familiar social dynamic. He's describing the shape of every clique, of every in-crowd, of every circle of so-called elites, whether they are middle school mean girls, or Hollywood A-listers, or New York tastemakers. Uh, when you or I lie awake at night asking ourselves, what if they find out I'm faking it, this is probably the they that we're worried about the people on the inside of whichever inner ring it is we so desperately want to be a part of. Maybe it's the people in the office who seem to be in on all the big decisions, or maybe it's the group of students who always seem to have something fun going on on the weekends, or maybe it's the group of Uber moms who always hang out together in the park and who always look so put together. Uh, maybe it's the hip-hop scene or the punk rock scene or the indie film scene, maybe it's Broadway or maybe it's Wall Street whatever. Whatever your inner ring is, whoever your they is, the desire to be on the inside, to belong, 
to be seen as belonging is a powerful, powerful thing. It is, I would wager, the desire that inspires 90% of our selfies, our tweets, and our Instagram posts. It's probably the reason why most of us drank our first beer or smoked our first cigarette. When it comes to the desire to be part of the inner ring, you've only got a few options, right? If you're outside and trying to get in, you just have to fake it until you make it. You have to conform. And if you're on the inside, then you have to keep up appearances. You have to keep up appearances lest you be outed as the faker that you know you are. And that, my friends, is the root of imposter syndrome. The fixation on them on what they think about me. Which brings me to my next question. Who do I think I am? So we talk about who they are. Who do I think I am? And that's actually a really hard question, right? Uh, Walker Percy, in his great book, Lost in the Cosmos, uh, the last self-help book, he puts it this way. Uh, he says, why is it possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which is 6,000 light years away, than you presently know about yourself, even though you've been stuck with yourself all your life. Ask yourself, how many different personality tests or skills assessments have you taken? Do you know your Myers-Briggs type? Your Enneagram type? Do you know your top five strengths and strengths finders? Uh, do you know your Chinese zodiac sign, your horoscope, your spirit animal? Have any of these tests, honest to goodness, told you who you really are? We are mysterious to ourselves. The self, yourself, and myself are, as Walker Percy says, the ghosts which haunt the cosmos. Well, just disclaimer, this might get a little dark, but it'll get brighter at the end, I promise. <laughs> we're, all, we're all Pinocchios, trying as hard as we can to make ourselves out to be real boys and girls. And the harder we try, the longer our noses get. And of course, part of the power of the they, of the inner ring, is that they appear to be real boys and girls. They seem more real to us than we seem to ourselves. They don't look like ghosts to us. They look like the real deal. They look substantial, solid, self-assured. And we think that if we can just fake it enough to make it into their circle, then we will become real too. So we hope. But that's an illusion. That is not the way to become your true self. Uh, the great 20th century Catholic contemplative Thomas Merton, I think, gets it exactly right. He says this. He says, uh, for me to be a saint is to be myself. I'll say that again. For me to be a saint is to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is, in fact, the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. But God leaves us free to be whatever we like. We can be ourselves, the people God made us to be, or not, as we please. We are at liberty to be real or to be unreal. We may be true or false. The choice is ours. We may wear now one mask and now another and never, if we so desire, appear with our own true faces. Every one of us, says Merton, is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self, false self, a self that we make for ourselves on our own, apart from God, and based on what we think will most impress 
the various inner circles that we are most worried about. Merton says, if I live out of and for my full self, I will find myself spending my life chasing power, honor, knowledge, and love to clothe this false, ghostly self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. And I wind experiences around myself like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covers its surface. But there is no substance under the things which I am clothed, uh, with which I am clothed. I am hollow, and my structure of pleasures and ambitions has no foundation. I am objectified in them, but they are all destined by their very contingency to be destroyed. And when they are gone, there will be nothing left of me but my own nakedness and emptiness and hollowness to tell me that I am my own mistake. I told you it would get dark. Um, <laughs> so, so says Thomas Merton. The false self is an illusion. It's a self-deception. And so it is powerless, powerless against the nighttime what-ifs. The false self is powerless against the allure of the inner ring. So, what's the solution? How do I find and live as my true self? Who am I really? It brings us to our third section. If Thomas Merton is right, if for me to be a saint is to be myself, if the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self, if, that is, if, if that's the only way to break the power of the inner ring, the power of the they, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, here's where the Apostle Paul can be really helpful to us. Uh, so, consider this. Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, which we just read. Uh, he wrote that while sitting in a jail cell, while his reputation was being dragged through the mud, while the churches that he had uh, struggled so mightily to establish are sort of wavering in their faith. But despite all these circumstances, Paul is confident, self-assured, and content. He writes towards the end of the letter, and I quote, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I want to learn that secret, don't you? Let's listen to what Paul has to say and see if we can learn what he has learned. So the first thing that we learn uh, from Paul, the first thing that we hear him say to the, uh, to the Philippians is, put no confidence in the, the false self, or as Paul calls it, the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh or the false self. In this passage, Paul warns the Philippian Christians, who were Gentiles, uh, about a group of Jewish Christians who were making the rounds uh, and saying that if you were going to be a real Christian, if you were going to be a real uh, fully paid up, card carrying Christian, you would need to become Jewish too. You would need to eat kosher, you would need to keep Sabbath, you would need to get circumcised if you were a male. That was basically what they were saying. And for the Philippians, these Gentile Christians trying to make sense of what it means uh, to be followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, 
these Jewish Christians seem like the inner ring of the church. They seem like the ultimate in crowd. And maybe, just maybe, they really are the only real Christians the Philippians are thinking. Maybe I do need to start beefing up my religious resume. But Paul says that that is a mistake. Uh, and he warns the Philippians not to fall into it. Building your identity on your cultural or ethnic or even your religious qualifications is not what it's about. So Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Sort of a derisive way of referring to uh, fleshly circumcision. Uh, for we are the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Look, says Paul, uh, if anyone ever had grounds for confidence in his religious resume or his cultural credentials, it's me. Paul's Jewish bona fides are about as solid as they come. But that is not the secret to his confidence or his contentedness. For one thing, Paul knew from the Jewish scriptures, especially Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, that God is ultimately not concerned about the circumcision of our flesh, but rather the circumcision of, or the transformation, the circumcision of our hearts. And this transformation, the inner work, uh, is precisely what the Holy Spirit is doing in Paul and the Philippians. And so Paul could confidently say to the Philippians, we, you and I, are the true circumcision, the ultimate Israelites, God's inner circle, who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the first part of Paul's secret is this. Do not put your confidence in the flesh, in your false self, in your credentials, in your resume, in your bona fides, uh, and in your street cred. Those are not the things that define you. Christian friends, the God who uniquely made you and who knows who you are and who you were made to be and who is even now at work in your heart restoring you uh, to your true self, he is the one who defines you. And he sees you as lovely and good and is totally worth it. Which brings us to the second part of Paul's secret. So, you only, here's the second part. You only find your true self in Christ. You only find your true self in Christ. See, the truest thing about you is not anything that you've done or anything that you know how to do. It's not where you're from uh, or what you're good at or who you hang out with. Uh, the truest thing about you is that God loves you. That he loved you so much that he not only made you, but he himself and the person of Jesus Christ went on a suicide mission to save you and reclaim you as his own and to heal every broken thing inside of you. That's the truest thing about you. You won't find your true self in any inner circle. You won't find your true self in any of your achievements. The only place where you can find your true self is in Jesus Christ, who loves and died for you. 
according to the Creed, uh, the Apostles, or I'm sorry, uh, Nicene Creed, Jesus is the one who is uniquely fully God and fully human. He is no Pinocchio, right? He's, he's the first real boy that earth has ever seen. Jesus reveals to us both who God is and who we human beings were made to be as bearers of God's image. To become more yourself, you must become more like Christ. And you become more like Christ by trusting him and following him and getting to know him and becoming personally familiar with him. And in the end, you will share Jesus' unbreakable resurrection life. That's why Paul says uh, in verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may, by any means possible, attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, if your true self is to be found, uh, not in your reputation or in your resume, but only in Christ, then by all means, pursue Christ, right? This should be our number one priority. Everything else takes the back seat. As for all the other stuff, as for all the other stuff, just, you know, be willing to be like Elsa and let it go, right? Um, now, that's a lot easier said than done. Uh, but Paul knows that. Paul knows that. So, you know, listen to what he says. He says, uh, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul, Paul himself acknowledges that he is a work in project or progress. Uh, that's encouraging to me. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So, the third and final aspect uh, of, of Paul's secret is this. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself, but be persistent. Christ has done what must be done. Uh, to make you his own. He has adopted you as part of his grand uh, restoration project for the universe. Uh, yes, you are a work in progress, but God is com uh, committed to completing the work. Right? He's going to see this project through. So, given that, press on to make Christ's resurrection life your true life, your own. Forget about the they. For stop faking it. And stop trying to make, uh, make it into the inner circle. Press on into the kind of life that Christ made for you. Love God, love your neighbors, love your enemies, uh, love them with everything you've got. Love them with your unique, your gifts, your talents, your education, your opportunities, your credentials, your career. Love them with everything God's given you. You were made by God, by the God who is love, in order to love others. That's what you're made for. It's who you really are. 
It's only when you begin to see your unique gifts, your skills, your life experiences, not as resume items or as passports to privilege, uh, but instead as equipment for serving God and serving neighbor, that you will begin to discover who you really are. It's only then that you'll stop faking it and that you'll be free from the nighttime what-ifs. Right? And here's the secret. Once you start doing the things that you do for love's sake, uh, for the sake of doing well, things that are well worth doing, to make the world a better place uh, out, of, out of the love of God, you'll gradually find yourself in that unique little circle of people who have become master craftsmen and craftswomen in whatever your field is uh, because you've been devoted to doing the work well for, for the sake of others. And that is what it looks like to find out who you really are. So let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us by your Spirit, day by day, who we truly are in you. Lord, that we would be reminded day by day who you are. Lord, that we would be freed from the nighttime what-ifs, that we would be freed from the anxiety of thinking that we might be found out as fakes and frauds. Lord, help us to, to become real, to be honest and transparent and vulnerable, to love others uh, with, with all that you've given us, that we might be reflections of your image out into the world. Pray all this in Christ.